0: You're listening to a podcast on Catholic Saints. This podcast is produced by the Augustan Institute, an apostolate helping Catholics understand, live, and share their faith.
1: Hello, welcome to Form Now. My name is Dr. Ben Akers, and I'm the Executive Director of Formed here at the Augustan Institute. Joining me today is my friend and colleague, Dr. Scott Heffelfinger, who is a professor at the Augusta Institute Graduate School of Theology. Thank you for joining me. Happy to and be here. And we're here today talking about the feast of Saint Thérèse, the Little Flower as she's sometimes known, Saint Thérèse of Lisieux. Sometimes you'll hear us call her Teresa, which is the great who she's the great saint she's named after. She actually dies in September 30th in 1897, but that feast day was already taken by St. Jerome. And so she was bumped to the next day, which is a beautiful way to kick off the month of October with St. Therese. She's a great saint. She's uh, a young saint. She's a doctor of the church, which means that she reflects in her teaching the wisdom of God in some way. Pius XI said that she was the greatest saint of modern times. So I'm really excited to, 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 st- to be, with, be with you today and be with my friend, Dr. Heffelfinger, to talk about this great saint. Uh, Scott, what's your relationship to Therese? When did you first meet her as a friend?
0: Yeah, I think it wasn't until my, my 20s, really, when I, I was out in Europe studying at a small school um, called the International Theological Institute. And uh, when I got there, I was informed in a great way that there were two patron saints for this institute. And one of them was the great common doctor of the church, St. Thomas Aquinas, this great, abstract, the speculative mind, doc- the, the angelic yeah. doctor. Um, and I thought, great, you know, this is what I'm here for. And then the other one is St. Therese of Lisieux. And and I thought, oh, that's interesting because she's not St. Thomas, first of all. And second of all, she's so much younger. Um, she thinks of herself as being simple. Um, the little flower, her little way. And so it was a little puzzling when I first, you know, found this out.
1: Um, This like juxtaposition between a giant and a child.
0: Yeah, exactly. (laughs) As patrons. And I don't think I even knew at that point that she was a doctor of the church. And so I understood why St. Thomas Aquinas was a doctor of the church. But again, this was sort of puzzling to me. Um, why she was considered a doctor of the church. But as I got to know her a little bit, um, that's when I started uh, reading her, her famous work. Her most famous one is her autobiography, The Story of the Soul. Um, but then also why it was that John Paul II proclaimed her a doctor of the church. And as I kind of dove into that, she quickly grew in my estimation and I just sort of continued to befriend her.
1: When uh, John Paul II declares her a doctor of the church, and there, there are not many doctors of the church. We have the fathers of the church. These are the early Christian writers for the sur- several hundred years of the early church's history that are live and breathe scripture. They're incredible teachers. They're priests. They're bishops. And then we have another class of ways that we describe saints, and this is doctors of the church. And they can as doctors, they give us a healing balm that's often found through teaching, right? That's the, the idea is that they teach us something that is key to the spiritual life. When John Paul II declares her a doctor of the church, is, does he give us a reason why?
0: Yeah, he actually, it's it's kind of a long document, um, about 10 pages if you print it out and read it. And um, I think part of the reason for its length is, is not just that there are great things to say about Therese, but it's because he almost feels the need to justify this this hidden saint. Um, she spent all of her uh, kind of adult life within uh, the Carmel in the cloistered monastery. Um, she doesn't have sort of very many lofty writings. Um, she dies when she's very young, and so there's almost this process of justifying why a doctor of the Church and he gives several reasons why um, the kind of core doctrine that he says she lifts up for a Lifts up for us is called uh, the science of love, and she, in a in a particularly spiritual and mystical way, is given the gift of insight into the reality of divine love. And so it's her teaching on that which is accessible, faithful, um, profoundly mystical, um, and inspiring. And these are some of the reasons that he gives for lifting her up as a doctor of the church.
1: So when I hear science, my modern ears go. Chemistry? Biology? What do we mean by science? So when he he says science, what does he mean by that?
0: Yeah, well, it's sort of like the genetics of... No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) Um, No, what does he mean? So theology is a science. Um, It's not an empirical science like the modern sciences where it's visible, you test a hypothesis, you know, all of these sorts of things. Um, It's a science in the sense of a coherent body of knowledge that's based on revelation. And so the science that St. Therese opens up for us is a coherent and persuasive and profound analysis and exploration of the reality of divine love as it is in God, but then also and especially as it lives in and through us, what we call charity, a theological virtue.
1: That's, and that's one of the things that we will continue our discussion on today is we want to talk about what are some of the teachings that we can glean from St. Therese where she's not just a saint for the past, she's the greatest saint of modern times, she's a saint for us today and so one of the themes that we're going to close with today if you're what if you continue watching with us is we're going to be talking about how this matters to us today how do we live this out in our own life
0: yeah absolutely
1: because love is so important right <laughs> love is what it's all about it's central i mean one of the great things about her teaching
0: is um you know kind of as a precursor uh you know, almost 100 years before Vatican II. I mean, Vatican II, there's a phrase that we, we all know pretty well, and it's the universal call to holiness, which is a great inspirational phrase. But then the council actually specifies it a little bit and says, what is this? This is the perfection of charity, the perfection of love. So it's very appropriate to turn to little Therese and her science of love to understand, well, what does it mean and what does it look like to live out a vocation of love and it's very very relevant uh, not only she was religious not only for religious but in a particular way for the lay faithful which was uh, a big accent at, at Vatican too
1: well in reading the story of a soul which is a wonderful read you can it, it's really short i had a difficult time to be honest the first time i read it i just didn't get that into it and I don't know if it's just stories of a little girl, and I just thought, ah, this doesn't relate. I can't find it relatable. I don't know if you had a similar experience. I did, or. I did, okay. yeah. And, and then the second, and the third time, and the fourth time, and you can see it's marked up. My, my, my text is marked up. Uh, I've really grown to love her, and then now as a father, In looking, rereading the story of a soul, what really came out of me, and this is, I'd like to to talk a little bit about her autobiographical details, because we're talking about love, and she really received love and knew love in her family.
0: That's right. And I mean, it's important probably here to mention, too, um, she grew up in in a large family, um, nine children, four of whom died quite young. Um, The remaining five all became religious. And... um, her parents, we, in, our, in our family, we invoke their intercession every evening in our family prayer because her parents um, were the first married couple canonized as a married couple, Louis and Célie, and they are just an amazing example of parents. So when you look at these two great saints as parents, and then you look at St. Therese and her own account and some of her letters or her parents' letters, it really gives us a beautiful insight into Um, Catholic family life and the the, the love that she speaks about with with such great affection and such gratitude for um, in her own autobiography.
1: And in reading this story, you discover that her parents thought that they might be called to religious life. Her father thought he might be called to be a priest. Her mother thought about being a nun. And you, almost like a voice from heaven, but through the voice of the priest said, no, you're actually meant to be together, right?
0: Yeah. yeah. No, it, that's, I mean, we could do a whole other episode <laughs> on, on her parents. They're, they're, they're fantastic. And um, she, she takes from them, she, she talks so much about the tenderness that, with which she was raised. And she needed that tenderness because as she relates in her autobiography, she was, she was not an easy child. Um, and so she opens her biography by, um, in part, relating some of these difficulties that she had. And she didn't have an easy childhood. Her mother died when she was only four. um, And that sent her into kind of emotional turmoil, very understandably. But she was extremely sensitive. And um, she gives a beautiful little analysis that's helped me with, with our children, where she talks about she would do these loving things, but she wanted to get noticed. She did them for the sake of recognition, not because of God's recognition, but because very often her sister's recognition or her, her father's recognition. And so you see in a way a kind of growth in a child who is, is looking for affection and love and appreciation, but also is trying to find their way to be able to love for God's sake, because that of course is what charity is and what charity does.
1: And it's such a lesson for us today in whatever situation we find ourselves, whatever vocation we find ourselves of how to live out love. That love is essential to any vocation. That's something we'll, we'll reflect on. That, and she gets wonderful examples of it from her parents until her mother dies and her father uh, taking care of her and loving her and her sisters to, you know, take a maternal role towards her and forming her and teaching her love and to do the right thing. And then she does the right thing, but not always for the right reason. And then this is part of her growth in love. as all our growths in love that to do the right thing for the right reason.
0: Yeah. Yeah. One of my, one of my favorite things too, just thinking about her autobiography as a whole, she, she starts telling the story at the very beginning. She uses a beautiful phrase. She says that she's going to confide the story of my soul. And that's where we get the title of her autobiography. And what is this? She says, um, I'm, I'm going to be doing only one thing. I shall sing what I must sing eternally, the mercies of the Lord. So, so here we have this beautiful image of she's all that she's doing is singing about God's mercy. So there's another prominent theme, the, the mercy of God. And after telling a couple of uh, points from her life, she immediately sort of says, you know, this might be confusing because this doesn't sound so much like the story of my life. And she explains, she says, it is my thoughts on the graces God deigned to grant me. And what's so beautiful about how she begins is that her autobiography is not the story of a life as just a series of moments. Um, It's the story of God's work in her soul. It's the story of God's mercy in her own life. It's the story of God's grace acting in and through her to transform her. And that, of course, is real life. That is the heart of life. And so she really centers us on what's important in, in life, and that's God's life within us.
1: That, that struck me too when I was preparing for this and I was rereading. I just opened up the first page, and the fact that the, the story of my soul, the mercy, mercy, mercy is repeated four times on that first page, and then you keep going through that first chapter, and she talks about the mercy and how much mercy she's received. But then you look at her life and she says, but I've never committed a mortal sin. And one of the saints that she identifies with in this text often is St. Mary Magdalene, who you know, in some traditions you would think that she was you know, the, the seven demons are cast out from her. Some consider her part, the adulterous woman from the gospel. So someone who really needs to know the mercy of the Lord. How, does she, what's, how do we explain that juxtaposition where she identifies with one of the greatest sinners, we might say, before they met Christ? But she says that, I'm just like this. I have received the mercy of the Lord. Yeah, no,
0: that's an interesting question. I mean, I, I think that, you know, in, in the gospel, we, we have this line, um, the one who's been forgiven much loves much, or sometimes it's rendered in reverse. Um, and so this connection between forgiveness and love. And I think what, what Therese is keenly aware of is, it's true, even though she seems to say that she's never committed a mortal sin, um, that in and of itself is a great mercy, right? To be preserved from that, um, she's not taking credit for that. And so in a way, the great mercy that forgives Mary Magdalene um, is the same mercy that's active in her own life, not to forgive a grave sin, as as in the case of Mary Magdalene, um, but to preserve her from that, in the first place. And so whatever grace she has and whatever ability, and I think she would attribute this to her parents as well and her formation, all of that is an incredible gift to kind of send her on this path of purity and holiness and and the religious life.
1: And one of the images that she uses to to describe this and reflect on, in her reflections on this is to, she sees, you know, there's a rock in the road and and any, what parent would it move the rock so the child doesn't trip over it? and that she sees that the Lord's kind of merciful in her life is that to have removed the rocks so that she has a kind of an easy path. Mm-hmm. But we know it's not an easy path. We know it's, uh, it's a difficult path. That she, There's a lot of suffering in her life. So we might think of her as this young girl that maybe didn't have a lot of suffering, but that's the incorrect view. She is a young woman who grew in knowledge of herself, knowledge of God, and really grew through suffering and offering herself, offering herself in love. And she does this. One of the ways that she disposes this is we know her as her little way or her, uh, say, Teresa, the little child Jesus. We think of this like childness uh, because she also died young, 24 years old she dies. But she um, acts like a child. And you think about children. What are children? They're totally dependent on their parents. They know that the parents have planned something for them. And my kid's like, what are we going to do today? Right? like, We're their party planner. right? And total dependence, they know that the food will be on the table. And thanks be to God, we've been able to put food on the table for our children. And I just love that about this, this great trusting and childlike trust that she has. Um, and this is, is this related to the, the little way that she talks about?
0: Yeah, yeah, it definitely is. And um, the little way, I mean, usually when, when we talk about this, what is the little way? It's doing the little things with great love. And she recounts that in, in her own life, and she's very childlike. And so, you know, to go back to the comment that we both made about how the first read was, was not—we um, weren't immediately taken. Uh, and I feel like I hear that type of reaction more commonly from men. And, in fact, I've, I've, I was talking one time about the little way, and um, someone sort of said to me, Well, you know, that's, that's not a very masculine concept. And I thought to myself, well, that's kind of interesting. And so in reflecting on that, I think it's easy to forget that although she's a child and although it's a little way, it's doing little things with great love. That word great is so important because not only is she a child, but she um, later on in her account, um, and this is when she's developing the, the science of love, as she calls it, um, she, she talks about having within her um, these great desires, um, even early on, she says, I was beginning to run like a giant. Um, my desires are nearly infinite. I desire to be um, the warrior, you know, the apostle. Um, so although she's a child and although it's a little way, that doesn't mean that somehow she doesn't have great desires. And so there's there's a virtue that we talk about for this, um, the virtue of magnanimity, striving for great things. And sometimes we can think, well, you know, but we're supposed to be, we're supposed to be humble, right? How, how can we hold these two together? But when we, when we really think about it, um, every Christian is called to strive for something great. In fact, the greatest possible thing, namely beholding God himself in heaven. And it's such a great thing that it's impossible to us apart from grace. So we need the virtues of faith, especially hope, And charity but we're called to strive for great things and so when we think about her little way um, it's important to see that yes it is childlike and yes it does have to do with the very little things in life but we do them with great love and a love that exceeds our human capacities we do it with divine love that
1: love within
0: us in the virtue of charity.
1: And I think this is just beautiful. Just to go back to our patron of the Augustine Institute is Saint Augustine, and he's known for uh, his famous line: "Our hearts are restless until they rest in Thee, O Lord." That we're going to find the rest that we're all. That we're all made for this relationship with God. We're made by God for a relationship with God, and Augustine comes at it from the restlessness angle, that he's looking for the peace that he's going to find in a relationship with God. But then Therese is getting at the same reality by talking about this greatness of this relationship, this striving, this reaching out as a child reaches out to their father to be picked up. And this idea that uh, this greatness of soul that she has, striving for great things, uh, is... It's similar to Augustine's kind of restlessness. That they have different personalities that come out in the different saints. When you said uh, the greatness and striving to do great deeds and her inspiration that she has, uh, in thinking about this, when, one of the way, places she talks about that in her manuscript is when she talks about the patriotic deeds of France's great heroine, Joan of Arc. Now, Joan of Arc is not canonized at the time that Therese is writing. In 1894, France declared a year of Joan of Arc, she was just, and she was made venerable in 1897. She's not canonized until 1920, after Therese has already died. Therese will be canonized in 1924. But really, St. Joan of Arc was a great inspiration for Therese and so many, so many other girls, my kids like dressing up as, the females dress up as Joan of Arc, the boys St. George, St. Michael, anything with a sword, right? As, this, is, you know, this is what the boys and the girls want to dress up as little kids. But she's very inspired by Joan of Arc. It captures her imagination. And Joan of Arc, if you think of the history of Joan of Arc, she's known for going to battle. She's known to go to battle to, to fight against England with, you know, for France and she's burned at the stake and she says incredible things, you know, uh, like I was born for this, these, these things she says. And the echo of St. Joan of Arc to me came out in this particular passage where she talks about the venerable Joan of Arc. She says, I had a great desire to imitate them, these great deeds, these great deeds of Joan of Arc. And it seemed I felt within me the same burning zeal with which they were animated, the same heavenly inspiration, then I received a grace. So she says, "I want Joan of Arc. I want to do great things. Maybe it's on the battlefield, but maybe not." And this is the great grace she talks about that I've always looked upon as one of the greatest in my life. So one of the greatest gifts of all the graces she's received. At that age, I wasn't receiving the lights I'm now receiving. I have page seventy-two on my manuscript. Uh, when I fled with them, I considered that I was born for glory. So to me, that's an echo of Joan of Arc's great. I was born for this. I was born for glory. I was born for greatness. But when I searched out the means of attaining it, am I supposed to go to the battlefield? Am I supposed to be this great teacher of the faith? Am I supposed to go and be a great uh, evangelist out in, into the unevangelized places of the world, right? Whatever questions that we might ask of ourselves, like, where am I supposed to fit into this story of salvation? God inspired me in the sentiments I have just described. He made me understand my own glory would not be evident to the eyes of mortals, that it would be consistent in becoming a great saint. She says, the greatness that I'm called to is to be a great saint, but it's a great saint in the hiddenness of God. So not to be known on the battlefield and invoked, you know, as a great saint in churches. She didn't see that for herself. She saw herself as a little flower, as hidden in the life of Christ.
0: Yeah. And I think what's so, what's so insightful to me about that is um, something can be great and hidden at the same time. And, you know, there's a certain way that I feel like that's, that's very relevant and applicable um, for most of us in a lay vocation. It applies to the religious as well, as we see in, in St. Therese. But, um, you know, we're talking about some of the things that go on in our, in our uh, households, right, and uh, w- with our kids. And th- does anybody in the world really see this? Thankfully, not really. No. <laughs> but um, it's yeah. a hidden way, and yet we're, we're trying, as, as you know, many faults as we have, we're trying to do this With a kind of heroic love, because we know that's what our children deserve, and that's what we want to give them. And so, hiddenness and greatness aren't contradictory. And I think that's such a helpful realization. And and, and what I think of here is, um, you know, when we look to Christ as our model, um, his his public ministry is, by definition, not so hidden. It's true that there are moments where he kind of goes off to pray and smaller things that he does, but sort of the nature of what's recounted to us in the Gospels, by and large, is, is, is public, right? So I think of the little way as somehow being very perfectly um, captured in the hidden life of Christ, where we don't know that much, but we know certain things about how he would have loved his parents, his earthly parents, how he would have been obedient to them, how he would have worked in the workshop at Nazareth. And, and I think that's a very, very fruitful meditation on what greatness, because Christ certainly was doing all of these things with the greatest love, um, what that greatness looks like in a very hidden world, the world of the home and the world of, of work, two areas that are so important for um, the lay vocation.
1: It is fascinating when you look at the Gospels and you see Jesus come on the public scene where His first miracles, His first acts in His public ministry, and you go back, he's about 33 years old, and then you go back and say, but what happened for the first 30 years? We have a couple of those stories about Annunciation, um, about his birth. We have a story when he's 12 years old and he's, he lost his parents to lose him and he's in the temple. And besides that, it's hiddenness. It's, it's quiet. And there's a certain, it's, it's amazing because we know his public ministry and that's how God chose to reveal himself. That's what the evangelists wrote down. That's what they wanted to communicate to us about Christ's life on earth but that's only about 10% of his earthly life. That the 90% of his earthly life is hidden in this school of prayer, the school of hiddenness that we see at Nazareth.
0: Yeah, I was just, uh, well, the Catechism has a great section on the hidden life of Christ and the the riches that are are there um, for meditation and prayerful reflection. And I was just recently reading um, a work that was recommended to me by one of my colleagues in in the graduate school. uh, by Dorothy Sayers on work, and she is ta- she talks about the dignity of work and how what is the Christian way of working? It's to work with, with excellence, and she makes some really great trenchant points, but then she turns to Christ, and, and she has this great phrase. She says, um, you can be sure that no cr- crooked legs or ill-fitting drawers ever, I dare say, came out of the workshop at Nazareth, you know, or something like that, and I thought, yeah, that's so right. I can't imagine. I mean, we we shouldn't be able to imagine Jesus working uh, in a in a sloppy or shoddy way, you know. And so there's great and excellent work being done there in the hiddenness of the workshop. And I feel like that's so much of what goes into um, a theology of work and an appro- a very practical approach to work for um, for Catholics for Christians. Where what what can we do? Certainly, we want to. Pray as we work. Certainly, we want to encounter those in the workplace with great love and patience um, and generosity. But as for the work itself, how do we do that in a Christian way? Well, we do it in a way that gives glory to God. We do it in a way that imitates the excellence with which Christ certainly worked. And that's an example of the little way in action. A little thing, um, you know, like this email that I'm typing or this small project that I'm working on, but doing that little thing with great love, and in that case, mean, meaning great excellence as well.
1: And that's one of the things that exactly what St. Therese teaches about. When, when you read, I think when I first read it, I'm like, these are stories about the sister sitting next to her splashing her with water when they're doing the laundry and the wash together or the rosary that's clinking on the on the, the pew and, and how St. Therese is trying to pray, but that's all right. she hears is the rosary clinking on the pew or the uh, or the getting splashed by the water. And, and this, this she tells a story about a, a nun that she just personally was not drawn to or attracted to as it would be, you would be to a friend, but that she just decided to love this sister, and this sister thought that she was the most lovely person in the world. That she just showed so much charity to. And I think the, the second and the third time through, what really resonated with me is, I have those moments in my life where I get, you know, metaphorically splashed by the water. That I hear the, the, the rosary on the pew, the, the, the daily metaphorically life.
0: Metaphorically splashed yeah. by water. <laughs> with I, your I kids literally have the splashed over. Yeah. Okay.
1: Yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> and that that's these little inconveniences in our life come to every single person. We cannot avoid them. They're part of life. But what do we do with them when they do come to us? And Therese is a great example of this, of her magnanimity. Her greatness of soul is to turn those into moments of charity. This is a chance for me to love this person that's in front of me. They may be annoying. I I, I may just have low blood sugar and I'm in the position of annoyance, but I'm still going to love because that's what I can do. No one can take that away from me. This is what God has asked me to be is, is, uh, to be loving and to be more conformed to him. And this is how I grow in charity. And that's one of these beautiful passages that we see in St. Therese, where she's trying to figure out what vocation she's called to do. Oh, I want to be a great missionary. She's like, I can see the vocation of a priest and how beautiful that is. I can see the, the vocation. I and mean, she lists vocation after vocation that Paul talks about, apostle, evangelist, prophet, teacher. I want to do all these things. And she realizes, I want to be the engine. I want to be the heart of the mission. The only thing that makes an evangelist go, an apologist go, a, a great prophet and teacher go is for love. And she says, I want to be that st- that, the heart of love in, in the heart of the church.
0: Yeah, and you know, one thing that keeps coming back to me as we are talking about this is... Um, there's a beautiful way that St. Therese shows us how the saints help us to um, appreciate and go deeper into scripture. You know, we're talking about uh, the hidden life of Christ, right? And and in in St. Therese's idea of spiritual childhood and the little way, it points us to Christ's childhood and the hidden life of Christ. Um, Her science of love and this animating force of love and it being the greatest thing, she unpacks that um, based on a retreat and a meditation on Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, chapters 12 and 13, with the famous uh, passages on on love there. And so the the wisdom of the saints uh, comes from Scripture and sends us back to Scripture to be illuminated uh, by the words there in, in combination with what the the wisdom of the saints and the doctors that we have in the church. You
1: know, saints are the living examples for us. So the, 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 the words of the gospel come alive in their lives and that's one of the things that you'll discover as you start to get to know more and more saints. That they are endlessly creative in living out the theological virtues of faith, hope, and charity. We're all called to the same vocation to be like Christ. But to be like Christ in so many different ways that the the light refracts in so many beautiful and different ways. And this is the the great call that we've all been invited to in our Christian life. And St. Therese is a wonderful example of that. I hope you uh, can get to know her as a friend. She is also known as she was declared the co-patron of France along with St. Joan of Arc. In 1944. So I think that the the Pope noticed this connection between Joan on the battlefield and Therese behind the scenes, uh, behind a grill. When she enters Carmel, she never leaves again. And even though she never left Carmel, she's also the co patroness with St. Francis Xavier of the missions. She had a great love for those who were missionaries who were serving in lands where they had never heard the name of Jesus. She herself wanted to be a missionary, but she was never invited to. Some of her health uh, prevented her from doing it. But she knew that she could offer up sacrifices, carry the cross um, for people that were actually on the front lines. And so St. Therese is also the great patroness of missions. So patroness of France, patroness of missions, and she's a wonderful uh, intercessor and wonderful friend. So thank you for joining us today on Form Now, where we reflected on the life of St. Therese. You'll notice that we often will reflect on the saint of each day, and the reason for that is they're great models for us. They encourage us that the great heroic deeds that they do in life, we can translate and put into practice in our own life. Thank you, and God bless.
0: You can watch these interviews in video format by visiting form.org. Formed is an online Catholic streaming service created by the Augustan Institute and Ignatius Press with award-winning studies and parish programs, inspiring audio content, movies, e-books, and family-friendly kids programming. To support the mission of the Augustan Institute, please visit missioncircle.org.